0: All creation longs for the coming of its king. We join with creation looking forward to the arrival of the kingdom. We gather to share stories of God's faithfulness. To celebrate what he's done in the past and to anticipate his coming again. we look forward in hope this is advent where we prepare to welcome the king
1: good morning redemption Great to be with you all. My name is John Crawford. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing our Advent series, the third Sunday of Advent. And so we're gonna be continuing in our Welcoming the King series this morning. We're gonna be looking at the gospel of Luke. So the question that I have for you is, when you imagine the birth story of Jesus, what do you imagine? I think for many of us, we imagine silent night. But why would we imagine Silent Night? When has a home birth without a doula ever been silent? Never. For some of us, we might imagine the birth story of Jesus to look something like this. Kind of like Precious Moments type dolls, right? Or others of us, we imagine the birth story to look something like this. Like your typical nativity set. And I think the reason why we think of the birth story of Jesus this way is because we're so familiar with nativity sets that we probably have one in our house. Our neighbors got one in their yard. They're for sale in every store in America right now. And so the familiarity of a nativity set along with how entrenched we are in holiday tradition. These things have led us to think of Jesus' birth happening in a certain way. But Luke, this morning, wants us to imagine Jesus' birth story as a battlefield, something like this. This is the iconic image from Braveheart. And if you're anything like me, uh, you need an image to trigger you to think about what a battle looks like. Because I have a confession, I've never been in battle, I've never been in the military, I've never been on the battlefield, and... uh, I can't hang, right? I, I'll just say it. I, I could not hang in the military. Prior to becoming a pastor full-time, I was a male hairdresser for 15 years. So if that tells you anything about, uh, about me, there, there you go. That's my confession. I always joked around and said, if there's ever a draft for the military, uh, hopefully they would allow me to be a barber on the naval base because I could wear a peacoat and bell bottoms and cut hair. Um, so that's my, uh, that's my confession to you all. But Luke is setting up Jesus' birth story as a battle. That as we come to Luke this morning, we are seeing kings with their armies line up like this photo for battle. And this battle is going to determine who is the rightful ruler of the world. Who is the one true king? Is it Caesar Augustus or is it Jesus? And so the title for the sermon this morning is Jesus, the humble king. And as we look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see that Caesar Augustus is a tyrant king. We're going to see that Jesus is the promised king. We're going to see that Jesus is the humble king. And so before we dive into Luke, would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for Advent for your arrival, that you put on flesh and moved into our neighborhood and made yourself small, and we thank you that you are the king. Jesus, thank you that you are the God who speaks, and we ask that you would speak powerfully and clearly to us this morning, that you'd stand in my body and that my words would be your words, that, Spirit of God, you would move in this place today. Amen. All right, so we're, we're looking at Luke 2. Pick up in verse 1, the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke writes, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cornelius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So the first thing we see is a tyrant king that Luke is setting the stage for Jesus' birth with Caesar Augustus, who is a tyrant king. And Luke devotes a lot of time to this registration. Here in the first couple verses, this registration under Caesar is mentioned multiple times. Luke actually devotes far more time to this registration and to Caesar's rule than he does to the birth of Jesus in this passage. Just mentions Jesus' birth quickly. In one one verse. And so that makes us ask the question, well, why? What is Luke doing? Who is this guy, Caesar Augustus? See, Augustus is the emperor of the Roman world. He's the emperor of the world, known as the ruler of the world. And in verse one here, Luke says that this decree is for all of the world, that all would report to be registered. Luke's showing us that Augustus has dominion and he has power over the world. Augustus is the adopted son of the famous Julius Caesar. And so Julius Caesar is known to be, and he's proclaimed in Rome as divine, meaning that Julius Caesar is a god. And now Augustus as his son is proclaimed throughout Rome as the son of God. Does that title sound familiar? But not only is Augustus known as the son of God, he also has accomplished many amazing things for Rome. That it's under Augustus's rule where the Roman Republic has now become the Roman Empire, the Republic turned empire under his rule, that he was a harsh ruler. He was known for his brutality. He was unrelenting and he was known to be a masterful administrator. And it's through his harshness and by being an unrelenting ruler that he is able to usher in what is known as the golden age in Rome. This is an age characterized by peace And prosperity in Rome. But also, due to his brute force and brutality, he was able to overthrow and overcome his enemies and establish this golden age. And because of that, Augustus is also known as the Savior of the world. Does that title sound familiar? It's interesting, this is the first time in the history of the world where there's been one world governing system. Never in history before has this happened, but Rome is ruling the world, Caesar is on top, and yet this is the very time and this is the very place where God chooses could have chosen any other time, but it's this time when God chooses to launch his kingdom, to inaugurate his subversive kingdom into the world. This is not a coincidence. And so what is this decree that Augustus issues? It's a census, Don't think American census, where someone knocks on your door, they ask you a few questions, how many people are living in your home, that's trying to calculate and figure out the population in our country. This census is not concerned as much with population as it is profit. Caesar's looking to get paid. He wants to make money, and so he issues this census, and when people show up, they pay taxes. The purpose is taxation, but once again, it's different than taxes in our country. This census is also used for securing oaths of allegiance to the emperor. And so Caesar issued this decree, and when people would come, they would pay him. He would demand tribute be paid as a sign of loyalty, but also you would have to swear your allegiance to him, the son of God, the savior of the world, that you would have to say, I swear my allegiance to you. So he uses this census as a means of power and control. And the people who are living under Roman rule, they become a kind of economic slave. The common people living in Rome become economic slaves because the taxes are not like income taxes or sales tax. This tribute is being demanded and there are large tax payments. And so these large payments are demanded by common people in Rome in order to fund and fuel the lavish affluence of Caesar Augustus and the other Roman elite rulers. This is the situation that the people of God find themselves living in. Rome is oppressing people. Rome is exploiting people. And the people of God, the Jewish people, are waiting. They're waiting for deliverance. They're waiting for the Messiah to come to deliver them from this ruler who is harsh and unrelenting. And so, what happens? And what Luke is doing is he's setting up a confrontation that there's about to be a battle on the battlefield like the Braveheart imagery that the Kings are lining up. And this is a battle between the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of God. It's a confrontation of power. And it begins with a baby, that this baby is a threat. He's a threat to the self-proclaimed son of God, Augustus. And this battle will be be between the Son of God, Augustus, self proclaimed, and the actual Son of God, Jesus. And this battle will determine who is the rightful ruler of the world. Who is the true king? Luke wants us to know it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. Rome has all of the world power, but yet they're exploiting people with their power. They're oppressing people with their power. They're persecuting the people of God for their faith. They need to be delivered. They need to be rescued. They're waiting for this deliverance. And so what does God do? God enters Into battle. He shows up on the battlefield, and this is how he enters in. He launches a missile into the midst of the empire, and his missile hits a small, obscure town of Bethlehem in a manger. See, God's missile is not a bomb,
2: it's a baby. It's the baby in the manger. See, this baby has come to deliver.
1: This baby has come to bring the salvation that is longed for, the deliverance that people are hoping for. Caesar was a tyrant king, but we don't live under Caesar's rule. And you might be wondering, well, surely there's not tyrant kings today. Not in America. We live in a democracy with checks and balances. There there aren't tyrants today. We need to think differently about tyrant kings though, because there are kings who are tyrannical, who are oppressing us today, who are enslaving us today. The problem is that for for you, you think that these things will actually bring deliverance, that they don't actually enslave when really they do. There are false kings that are enslaving us in our society today. King consumerism has ascended to the throne this time of year, the height of overconsumption in our society, where king consumerism says deliverance is found through the accumulation of gaining more material stuff or how many experiences you can enjoy King consumerism says you will not have to suffer in the world if you just consume and consume and consume. The problem is king consumerism does not deliver, but only enslaves to our own detriment, to the detriment of our families, because we have to work more and take time away from them in order to buy stuff we don't need. For our finances, where we go into debt for things that we don't need, it comes at to our own detriment. There's also king humanism. If you're unfamiliar with humanism, it's where we put ourselves on the throne, that we think we can be autonomous, that we have confidence in our own abilities as humans because we're rational beings and we think that we
2: can deliver ourselves, that we don't need God. King humanism does not deliver. But
1: there's also king comfort on the throne, in our society, who enslaves. And King Comfort says, deliverance is found through a life of leisure and ease, through entertainment, that the goal of life is to enjoy as many things and life should be as easy as possible. But yet King Comfort does not deliver because we see that deliverance is found and life is found in self-sacrifice. The way of Jesus is the way of sacrifice. It's not just comfort. Jesus doesn't call us to a life of comfort. Those who have king technology, technology on the throne, technology is a good gift from God. It's a tool that we can use in order to navigate God's world. But the problem is we have become the tools that have been mastered by technology. And we now are enslaved by a screen. We think that technology can usher in paradise and deliver us, but king technology does not deliver.
2: See, the lie that we believe is that we live in neutral territory. but We don't live in neutral territory.
1: Jesus is the one true king. And Jesus is the one that you need to deliver you from these other enslaving kings that have their grip around you. Jesus is the one true king who brings freedom. Jesus is the one true king who brings abundant life. And he is the one true king that invites us to enjoy life in his kingdom. So the question for you this morning is, where
2: are you feeling the tyranny today? Let's see what the result of this census is as we continue here in verse four.
1: And Joseph, went, Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. The next thing we see this morning is that Jesus is the promised king, that he is the one that God has promised would come and deliver his people and rule forever. See so Joseph goes to Bethlehem on this journey we see in these verses. And so far in Luke, it seems as though Caesar Augustus is the one in control with the power and everyone else is subordinate to his order. But there's a higher purpose for this census. There's a higher purpose for the census than, that Augustus has ordered than what he planned. This is the very providence of God at work in the world. See, because due to this census that Augustus orders, Joseph finds himself complying with it. And now he travels to Bethlehem because he's of the house and lineage of David. He has to go to the town of David, Bethlehem. And as he does this, he is actually fulfilling the scriptures. That God's very own purpose comes to completion, that there's the higher purpose of this census is that the prophecy that God had spoken hundreds of years before in Micah would come to fulfillment. And in Micah chapter 5, the prophet Micah writes this about Bethlehem, about the ruler of Israel who would come from Bethlehem. He writes, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, You, from you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel. Who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. See this higher purpose for this census is that this prophecy of Micah would come to fulfillment. And what Micah is saying here is that in the town of Bethlehem, this town that is too small, it's five miles outside of the big, beautiful city of Jerusalem. This tiny town that's too small to be in the clans of Judah, the ruler of Israel would come forth, would be born in Bethlehem. And as Joseph travels to Bethlehem, God is making good on this prophetic hope. He's making good on the words of Micah because Jesus is the ruler of Israel. Jesus is the one that will be born in Bethlehem, the one who's promised to come out of Bethlehem. See, God's providence overwhelms Caesar's purposes. How many of you have ever made plans to do something? You do it, and then you realize later that God had different purposes for the thing you did, that he had a higher purpose for the very thing you did. I know for me, Uh, The reason why I'm standing on this stage here before you today is because when I was 21, I made the decision to move to an apartment complex. Never thought it would have led to this, right? When I was 21 years old, I I moved out of my parents' house for the first time I got my own apartment, and I moved to Chandler in order to be close to my girlfriend. That was my plan. I'm going to move close to be by my girlfriend, Marika, who's now my wife. She's sitting here somewhere. Um, And that was my plan. And it was cheap, and I could afford it. But God had a higher plan in that. His providence was that I moved to this apartment, didn't know that I would see one of my old coworkers at the apartment complex. He just so happened to live there as well. He was a Christian. He invited me to his church. Long story short, it was me attending the church he invited me to, which led to my salvation and saving faith in Jesus, which has led to me being here today. That's how the providence of God works. He has a higher purpose. And for every one of you sitting here this morning, uh, the same story, not apartment complex, but you guys have the same story that you've made plans and decisions, but yet God has had higher purposes. And that's exactly what is happening here. And so Luke keeps bringing up David, the city of David, the house of David, the lineage of David, because he's highlighting for us King David. Because King David is a very big deal. He's a very big figure for the people of God. In Judaism, King David is their ideal king. He's a man after God's own heart. Israel saw significant victories and and prospered under his rule. And so... Luke is drawing our attention to King David because God made a promise that Israel knows about. Israel is holding on to this promise because in 2 Samuel chapter seven, God comes to King David when he's alive and he makes a covenant covenant. If you don't know what a covenant is, it's the deepest of all promises and he makes this promise to David and he says David, from your lineage, through your offspring, there will be someone who will sit on your throne and establish your throne forever. That your kingdom will last for a, forever and it'll come through your offspring. And so the people of God remember this promise. They hold on to it because once again, they're living under oppression. And they want to be delivered and they know that this Messiah King will come through David's line. And so they're waiting and they're hoping for this promise to be fulfilled. When will God show up? When will the Davidic King come? And Luke is showing us that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise that was made hundreds and hundreds of years before Joseph journeys to Bethlehem. Jesus is the long-awaited, long-expected Messiah who comes through the line of David. Caesar Augustus' reign will end. But Jesus is the king whose dominion is universal and everlasting, just as God promised to David. This means that God keeps his promises. That for hundreds and hundreds of years, God had made a promise to David and he kept his promise. That he has been faithful to this promise. But Israel has not been faithful to God. They have sinned consistently. They have rebelled in these cycles and patterns of rebellion. They have not been faithful to God, but God has been faithful to not only his promise, but he's been faithful to his people. He's been faithful to deliver. He's been faithful throughout the ages. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. And what this means for us is that in spite of our sin, in spite of our unfaithfulness to God, he will be
2: faithful to deliver us. The tyrant kings don't have the last word over us. If you knew that someone would keep their promise all the time,
1: how would it change the way you lived? If you knew that someone was going to keep their promise that they make to you all the time,
2: how would it change the way you live? So there's a show called the man in the high castle. I mentioned it last,
1: uh, last service at the 9am and I must've been living in a cave or something. Cause I had dozens of people come up to me and tell me how amazing the show is. So um, if I'm tired, if, I feel, if I'm a little tired this week, it's Josh Butler's fault because Josh told me about this show, The Man in the High Castle. And some of you have seen it, some of you haven't, but this show has hooked Marika and I and we've been staying up later than what we probably should because we've been binge watching this because the premise is just fascinating. And so if you are unfamiliar with the show, this is the premise. It takes place in the 1960s in America. Uh, I think it's set in 1962. And the Axis powers of World War II have actually won the war. Germany and Japan have taken over America. And so American citizens are living under this oppressive rule in their own country. That there are these foreign uh, oppressors that are now reigning. That Nazi Germany... Um, are ruling everything on the east side of the Rocky Mountains. The Rocky Mountains are the neutral zone and everything east, the majority of America is controlled by Nazi Germany. On the west coast, west of the Rocky Mountains, Japan is ruling. And so you have things like eugenics that are still going on. You you have... Jewish people that are being hunted down. You, you have uh, racial discrimination going on with the Japanese on the West Coast. It's not a good place to live, but this is the American citizens find themselves living under Nazi and, and uh, Japanese rule in America. And the hook, the thing that hooked me on this show, besides it's a fascinating premise to think of, well, what if that actually happened? Is that in the show, there are these film reels and I know not everybody knows what a film reel is because this isn't the 1960s anymore. But um, on the film reel, it, it's showing images like a movie, an old school movie of what the world might be like, a future reality. And so these Film reels are being passed around as forbidden propaganda. They begin to be circulated because on these film reels, it shows an alternative world, a world of what it could be, a different reality of a future vision of life. And because of that, it begins to spark a revolution, an underground revolution that that is revolting against the Axis powers ruling in America because on this film reel, it shows a vision of the United States and its allies actually defeating Germany and Japan. And so because there's this different vision of reality that could be of what could be in the future, it sparks a revolution against the Axis powers in America. See, in the same way, When you see that God keeps his promises, when you see that God has been faithful throughout the ages, it sparks a revolution. It sparks a revolution because it gives you a vision of a future kingdom that has broken into our world now. It's a vision of the kingdom of God, a future vision that is here in the present. And it's a better way to live. It's an alternative vision for life that is characterized by peace by justice, compassion, generosity, love. It changes the way you live. It brings you hope and it brings you confidence because God will keep his promises. He has kept his promises throughout history and he will continue to keep his promises, amen?
2: Where do you need to cling to God's promises today? Let's see how the birth takes place here in verse seven. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn
1: son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. The last thing we see this morning is that Jesus is the humble king, that he left the comforts of heaven for the cradle in Bethlehem. So Mary gives birth to Jesus. She wraps him in cloth. She lays him in a manger. This manger, if you're unfamiliar with what a manger is, it's a place where animals feed, whether it's in a stable or whether it's in a poor home, that doesn't matter because what Luke is drawing our attention to is he wants us to see that Jesus has been excluded from normal shelter. And now he resides in the manger that it's in the manger that Jesus beginning of self emptying of himself, his humility, it's his self emptying begins here in this manger that we will see play out through the rest of his life as he is the humble servant king. Luke wants us to see the circumstances around Jesus' birth to highlight his humility, that Jesus is the God of the universe. He is the God who has put on flesh, the creator God who created the entire universe. He could have made his way into our world in any way, shape, or form he wanted to. The most magnificent way, he could have come in with a bang, but that's not how he chooses to enter into the world. The God of the universe who created everything intentionally makes himself small, as a vulnerable baby boy. He intentionally chooses obscurity. He chooses poverty. He chooses to be born in Bethlehem instead of Jerusalem. And if that doesn't translate, he chooses to be born in Eloy instead of Phoenix. If that still doesn't translate, he chooses Apache Junction instead of Scottsdale. He chooses to be born in a stable and not a bedroom. He chooses that his mother would be this young virgin who's betrothed to be married. Everything about his birth story points to obscurity. It's about as mundane as you can possibly get because Jesus is the humble king. And this shows us that Jesus is a different kind of king than Caesar. That Jesus is not the elitist king who lives in isolation in the comfort of his palace, but instead he's left his palace for poverty, that he's left his comfort for the cradle. That unlike Caesar's reign, Jesus' reign as king does not create oppression, but instead he delivers people from the oppressive rule of tyrants that are enslaving them so they can experience freedom in his kingdom. Jesus Caesar sacrificed Caesar sacrificed the lives of other people in order that he would maintain his power as king, but yet Jesus sacrificed himself in order to give his transformative power to his people. Caesar orders this census because he wants to get paid. Caesar orders a census to make profit for himself, but yet Jesus is born in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread in order to give of himself, to be the very source of provision for the world. Jesus is the humble king. Some of you are here this morning or watching online, and you are trying to prove yourself to God. You're trying to clean yourself up in order to climb the ladder to get to God. But the good news is you don't need to. You don't need to do that because there's good news about Jesus, this humble King. The good news is that he has come down the ladder into the messiness of life. He's come down the ladder into the mundane. He's come down into the obscurity of life and he's come down to meet you. And he has come to meet you here today. See, in the midst of whatever you're going through, in the midst of however messy your life may be right now, Jesus has come to meet you. And he's not only come to meet you, but he is pursuing you to find you, to find you in the midst of your obscurity to be with you. See, some of you are here this morning and you're struggling with sin. There's something in your life that you continue to do that you don't want to do. Jesus finds you in your obscurity and meets with you. Some of you are living in fear. You're crippled by fear. Maybe it's fear of the unknown. Maybe it's fear of what if people find this out? Maybe it's fear of God himself. Jesus finds you where you are in the midst of your situation. For some of you, you have painful family situations because there's been betrayal. There's been deception and lies that have now broken your family and there's division in your family and there's heartbreak. Jesus finds you in the midst of your situation. For some of you, it's addiction in this season that's been heightened by COVID that you've been running to an escapist behavior to try to find freedom and deliverance, but instead you find yourself perpetually enslaved to doing the same thing and you feel like there's no hope. Jesus has come to find you in your situation. Some of you are in the darkness of depression, feeling like there is no light. The light has come to you. Jesus Find you in the midst of your situation. And he doesn't just find you to meet with you. He finds with, he find you to be with you in the midst of it. That his name is Emmanuel,
2: God with us. That he is with you in your situation. See, as Jesus is born here in verse seven, Mary wraps him in swaddling cloths. Wraps his body in cloths and lays him in a manger shows us his humble birth. His humble birth points forward to the next time that his
1: body would be wrapped in cloths. But the next time the body of Jesus is wrapped in cloths, it's not to be laid in a manger, but his body is laid in a tomb because his humble birth points to his humble death. That Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on the cross so that he could win the battle. And not just the battle against Caesar Augustus, but the battle against Satan and the powers of evil. Jesus goes to the cross to deliver us from the oppressive rule of sin, from the tyrannical kings that are ruling over us. Jesus goes to the cross to deliver us. He's won the battle and he is victorious, amen? Jesus is the true king who has ascended to the right hand of the father where he is alive and he is ruling and reigning over all of creation. And one day he is promised to return to make all things new. And what we know is that God keeps his promises and he will come back. And so as we close this morning, there's an invitation. The invitation is to Jesus, the humble King that Jesus is inviting you this morning to humble yourself Before him, as he is the one who humbled himself for you. And so with that, we're going to enter into a time of communion. The communion element should be on your chair if you will grab those. See, it's with these elements that have purchased our deliverance. The the battle is won through these elements for what they represent, the body and blood of Jesus. But these are not just a representation. This is a celebration that Jesus is the victorious king. He is the king who's on the throne. He's delivered us from the oppressive rule of sin. And so go ahead and open the bread. This bread represents Jesus' body
2: that is freely given for us. Can take and eat at this time. And then with the juice here, this represents the blood, the new covenant in his blood. This is the blood that was shed for our sins at this time, take and drink. Let's close in prayer.